1: What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE.
2: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: So hello, everyone. And we're delighted to present uh, All for One and One for All public seminar series on mental health in academia and society. So these seminar series will shine the light on and discuss mental health issues in academia across all levels, from student to faculty, as well as in wider society. Seminars are held online once per month on Wednesdays at 5 p.m. CT or 11 a.m. EST and are free-for-all to attend. Speakers include academics, organizations, and health professionals whose work focuses on mental health. Live Q&A sessions will be held after each talk. And for live webinar schedule, please visit our Lashua Lab website, which is going to be in the uh, comments and the blog post below. So feel free to post your questions and thoughts as we go along, and then we will present it to our speaker. Good
0: afternoon, everyone. Uh, Every day from the time we wake up until the time we sleep, we make so many choices and decisions that shape our daily routines and determine how happy or productive we are during the day. Study after study continue to highlight the physiological benefits of having a daily routine. Most of us have daily routines and habits, but not everyone takes the time to reflect and assess how our daily habits and routines impact our productivity, but also our physical and mental health. Therefore, we thought it's important to have a discussion on the science of the healthy living and our daily routines. And there isn't a better and more qualified person to help us address achieve this Than our guest today, Dr. Stuart Fairmont. Dr. Fairmont is a medical doctor, brain cancer survivor, an educator, turned passionate science communicator and food scientist. He's the author of several bestseller books, including The Science of Cooking, published in 2017, Science of Spice in 2018, and the subject of our uh, webinar today, The Science of Living also sold as Live Your Best Life in in North America. And as I mentioned to him earlier, I hope that today's conversation will inspire a fourth book on the science of mental wellness or mental resilience.
2: Mm
0: -hmm. (laughs) He's a science and medical writer, presenter, and a regular guest on many TV, radio, and public events and programs. And his writings appears in national and international publications, including The Independent, The Daily Mail, and New Scientist. Since 2017, he has been a food scientist for BBC, much-loved show, Inside the Factory, host by Greg Wallace and Cherry Haley. He's an avid blogger. Stuart is also the founder and editor of Online Lifestyle Science Magazine Guru which is supported by the Wellcome Trust, the world's largest medical research charity. His book, The Science of Living, 219 Reasons to Rethink Your Daily Routines, challenges many of the conventional thinking about our daily routines, but also provides facts, scientific insights, and tricks that empowers us to make changes that will help us improve our mental health and productivity. It's a great pleasure to have you with us today, Dr. Ferriman, And uh, welcome everyone, as uh, Galena have mentioned. So we will have uh, a presentation by Dr. Fehrman followed by a conversation between the three of us. And uh, during that time, we'll be happy to take any questions or comment from the audience. Thank you all for being with us. And the stage is yours, Dr. Ferriman.
2: Thank you so much. That's a, um... Glowing um, welcome. So thank you. I feel very, very humbled for such an introduction. Untitled today's talk, The Science of Living, Understanding and Managing Stress. And uh, I've, I won't labour about who I am, but I've just put up a slide here um, to explain who I am. I've written three books, The Science of Cooking, The Science of Spice, and the book, The Science of Living, the most recent one. In North America, it's called Live Your Best Life. Um, And today, uh, we're going to be looking at are we all really getting more stressed? And is stress bad for me? Is there a quick way to calm my nerves? How do I manage worrying thoughts? And how can I deal with constant stress? I'm going to ask you the question, are we all really getting more stressed? And this is the thing that we hear all the time of, we've constantly got this feeling of of everybody's getting more stressed and in a survey in the United Kingdom in 2018, 74% of people in the UK said that they were too stressed to cope. But I want to ask you a question is what actually is stress? Because, you know, we people often say, how was your day? Oh, stressed or stressful. What did happen? Or oh, this really stressful thing happened at work. Is stressful the thing, is stress the thing we're feeling, or is stress the thing that happens to us? Is it an event a feeling a bodily response and i think the thing is is that we all use this term but we don't really understand what stress is and so i'm going to explain to you what stress is and importantly it's history which is really fascinating which you almost certainly haven't heard of um stress until the mid-20th century the only people who talked about stress were engineers when they were talking about the stresses on bridges. It entered in, it entered our language in the mid-20th century as basically a way to explain away why modern life was apparently making us sick. And stress as a concept was the brainchild of a 29-year-old Hungarian-born scientist called Hans Selye. In the mid-1900s, he started writing about experiments that he did a bit earlier in the 1930s. And in these experiments, these were grisly lab experiments. This guy was just fascinated by the body and how it responds. Essentially, what he did was he, sounds gruesome, but he tortured thousands of rats in various brutal ways. So what he did is he tied them up, he broke their bones, he starved some of them, some of them he cut their spinal cords, some of them he exercised until they're exhausted, some of them he stabbed in the abdomen, others he injected with harmful drugs. And he did this to see what the body, what they what they would do to a whole range of different, different insults onto them. After two or more days of essentially tortured these animals, he'd kill them. Uh, he'd sacrifice them and open them and examine what was happening on the inside and he observed that all the animals innards basically all their organs had changed in the same way regardless of what it was that they endured whether it was exercising to exhaustion starvation injury he saw that they all did a similar sort of thing and what he saw was that the adrenal glands which produce adrenaline they'd enlarged, while well, another set of glands called the thymus glands, in us, they're just in our neck, uh, or rather at the top of the heart. Um, and they produced the the mouth, the rat, the rat's uh, white blood cells, the defensive white blood cells. they have shrunk. So essentially, he's saying, this one's got bigger, this one's got smaller. There's something going on in the body um that no matter what happens this same thing is happening and he called it the general alarm system later on he then rebranded it for like as the stress response and that is where stress comes from Uh, but he he deduced basically from this experiment with the rats Uh, and actually when you go back and look at the details of his um of his experiments and the measurements that he made they wouldn't stand up to scrutiny today but he 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 deduced that because these rodents had responded in this way, all animals would do the same thing, and humans would be included in this, and that we'd all internally try to weather any prolonged insult in much the same way. And Hanselier, he was quite a character. He actually toured the globe researching. He did so much research, and he was essentially an evangelist for his his stress theory, and he would use it to explain why I had low energy levels and all sorts of medical problems that we had, stomach ulcers, arthritis, and heart disease. He was the first person to say, it's this out of control stress response that's causing all these problems. He actually wrote 39 books and had 17 Nobel Prize nominations, but not once did he get his Nobel Prize. So we owe the whole thing of stress largely to this guy there were other researchers around there at the time but he was the one who spearheaded it went around the world and uh, spoke all about stress so that is where we get our concept of stress from but I would tell you also that there's a, there's a twist in this tale is that we found out after he died there was a trove of declassified papers that revealed that Hans Selye had been enjoying basically lavish payouts from the tobacco industry to, to use his his research to say that smoking was a was a way to reduce stress and stress was this harmful thing causing all these these modern modern ills so if you smoke you're going to reduce your stress and you'll be weller and you'll be healthier Uh, so in the late 1960s when he was doing this he received a yearly award of fifty thousand dollars and today that would be equivalent to three hundred and fifty thousand us dollars and in return he testified in court to say that smoking was actually good for you for helping to relieve stress so that is the the origin of stress so i think that i think that's really fascinating and hopefully you can like sort of understand now well that's where this term stress comes from before that we didn't have this concept of stress so but what actually is it so what he found and which is largely what you read in all the textbooks a day of what is stress is it's a series of things happen so you have something that happens to you so in days of your would be a panther you know coming towards you for example some kind of threat to life and limb we call that the stressor that's the thing that triggers what he found and he called the stress response and a series of things happen in us it's all this stress response the first part of the stress response is also called the fight or flight response and that is when our body has this this instinct this uncontrollable instinct to to respond in a certain way to defend ourselves. So the first thing that happens is that in our brain, we recognize specifically in a part of the brain called the amygdala, it picks up any threats. And from that, it sends out um, signals to the adrenal glands using a hormone called ACTH. That hormone then gets the adrenal glands fired up, they produce hormones adrenaline which you've probably all heard of that's a thing that that, that we that we, we we're familiar with is when we get excited when our heart starts racing that's adrenaline also another hormone called this also called the stress hormone called cortisol those two things together produce a whole host of uh, different things we have our heart rate goes up we breathe faster our, eye, our pupils open and we become very focused on something we have tunnel vision towards whatever it is that is in our mind that we need to do be it get away be it solve this 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 problem let's say you're driving a car and something cuts up in front of you all of a sudden you get that surge of, of adrenaline and cortisol but you feel that as your heart rate goes up you breathe faster you become focused on something also what's going on inside of you is that your digestion slows down because your body is now focused on, I need to get out of this this emergency situation. I don't need to worry about anything else. Your digestion slows down, you sweat more, and the liver inside, the liver, which stores a huge amount of energy for you in a form called glycogen, which is basically animal starch, our long-term store of, of sugars, it then kicks into action and starts turning it into, into, into sugar. to so increasing our blood sugar, our blood glucose levels to give us that extra fuel to survive. So these are the things that happen to us uh, in our body. Liver converts glycogen to glucose, heart gets faster, we breathe faster, digestion slows down, uh, we sweat more, our pupils open and we get tunnel vision. Now that is what all the textbooks tell you. So say so whatever happens to you, this these are these are the series of things that go on inside your body. But I say to you, are two stresses in my opinion, and you might find this as well. It often feels quite different. So if I fall over, if I'm going for a jog and I trip over and I hurt myself. the 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 response i get from that is very different from if i've got to go and do some public speaking for example or if for example i you know have some very terrible news that or my dog dies or something that stress is very different and so what i would say to you is that the body is far more sophisticated than we give it credit for and only now our research is starting to tease apart to say, actually, a body responds to, responds to this kind of stress in a, this way and this kind of stress in a different way, with a whole different sort of medley of hormonal responses to those stresses. So I, I share this with you so that when you read all the, all the things about stress, as I am going to talk about here, you need to bear in mind that individual responses to individual situations are can be very different. So no two stresses are the same. Being punched in the gut triggers a different biological response to the turmoil of a feud with a neighbour or the worry over a delayed paycheck. So I'm just going to you some thoughts of different stresses and the terms in which we're now increasingly using so that we don't just label everything as stress. So let's say, for example, you're asked to quickly stand up and speak in front of a, a, a room of your colleagues, your peers, and to like tell them about your latest piece of research or what you're doing, that might be termed an acute time-limited stress. And I've got a little graph here, um, so it basically shows you that the the stress level or the stress response is um, is low when normally, and then the event happens and the stress response goes up very quickly, and then it dips again very quickly afterwards. So that would be an acute time-limited stress. So that would be, say, sudden pressure of public speaking or being put on the spot. Now imagine, for example, you're preparing for an exam. So you've, you've, you know it's coming, you've got lots to do, you know, um, you're thinking, I don't need to sleep as much, I need to get more done. This might be called a brief naturalistic stress. And the pattern of the stress response is is different is that it builds up slowly builds up slowly as we know the deadline is accro- approaching as you know the exam is getting near and then when it passes the stress response diminishes it drops off straight away you feel you're back to normal again
1: we all know what it's like
2: so that is called a brief naturalistic stress that is very different though to let's say somebody dies a relative dies somebody, somebody loves or somebody or even just the pet something Something terrible happens to you. That would be called a, I mean, we just call it a stressful event. But that would have a very different stress response to those others. You would have the stress response would go up very quickly, and then it would recede gradually over a period of time as you come to terms with whatever thing that has happened. So that could be a bereavement, experiencing a major natural disaster, or there's some sort of calamity uh, that that might happen to you. If you had a bad relationship for example or your work you're really not enjoying your work it's really getting you down that again is a different kind of stress pattern we would call this a chronic stress and that you're your stress response is going up and it's going down and it never really goes back down to baseline. So you constantly got this, uh, got this level of stress that is, is above, uh, above what should be, what would be normal, what would be addressing. So that would be a draining job, a messy divorce, a responsibility such as caring for a loved one. There's one other kind of stress. Now, chronic stress is never good for you neither is another kind of stress um, which is called um, a distant stress so if something happens to you let's say you're abused as a child or you witnessed something horrific um, or you're in a war for example then what you can have the original event which is very stressful it happens the stress response goes up and then it goes back down to normal but then later on you can have a trigger that can then recreate that a very similar stress response again and so it can just recur and recur and recur again so this would be this would be a classic symptom of post-traumatic stress disorder PTSD but this we would term a distant stress response So again, so those last two, they're always, they're never good. Um, But generally speaking, the stress response is a normal, healthy reaction and a brief stressful event. Some of those ones that in the earlier part of of those examples, um, it it triggers helpful infection-fighting chemicals, which can be invigorating. Whereas long-term trauma, such as chronic and distant distant, uh, stresses, can actually have 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 negative effects it causes your white blood cells your virus attacking white blood cells to stop multiplying and can even lead to several stress related mental and physical conditions including diabetes it is also linked to obesity so the question i ask you is are we all really getting stressed now i've kind of often thought about this um how do i answer that question i would say that that and when i've looked into it there's no evidence that the lives that we are living now would end up greater number of stressors than at any other time in the past you think back about wars and famine and things that we have had to endure so i i don't think i've not found any evidence to show that we're actually more stressed in the sense of the stresses that are put upon us but i think that We've we've clouded all this idea of what stress is. And, and it's maybe that we become more aware of this, this concept of stress. But I think it helps you if you understand that, you know, what I maybe assume as stress maybe isn't what I thought it was. So is it bad for me? Is this stress response bad for me? Now, I want to uh, give you uh, uh, an image. So let's imagine that you have... the demands placed upon you and the capacity that is upon you. I've I've represented this on a slide as being two circles, one with capacity and one with demands, and they're both the same size. And in this situation, the demands and the capacity um, are matched can be the demands capacity to fulfill them are matched we can we can we can do this and we can cope with it so what happens is the demand places upon us a periodic stress response um we then respond to that and we can meet those demands and you end up with a healthy cycle actually and a bit of stress increase, gives you high energy levels and well-being and you can manage those demands so that's when they're balanced if it's not so if the demand exceeds your perceived capacity and that's important it's your it's your perceived capacity so it's what you think you are capable of if you feel that you're not capable of meeting this demand then you then it is uneven and rather than having a brief stress response you have this overblown stress response and actually you 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 don't respond to it positively and your ability to work decreases over time and so actually your your demands can, can increase and you end up in this vicious cycle of, uh, of of things getting worse and ultimately you'll end up getting very unwell so as this overblown stress response reduces your ability to deal with the demands so and actually it, it harms your health reduced health if you end up in this situation So, what can happen to us if this situation happens? Is is stress bad for me? Then, yes, it is. In these situations, the body's fight or flight response is essentially a primal sledgehammer reaction for for that was a lifesaver fending off predators. But it's a kind of it's a sledgehammer for cracking a nut with the day to day situations that we deal with now. It is useful if you're under threat and you've got to run away. All those bodily responses are ideal. But if, you know, you and I are sat working, we're under pressure, we've got stress to do, then the stress response will often be inappropriate for the situation that we're in. We end up with those stress responses that I've mentioned before that are not healthy. Um, so the impacts impact as I like to call the wheel of misfortune of different things that can culminate in our body. And it's worth being aware of this and paying attention to the effects of stress because many of us might think you know i handle stress really well um and that may be true but these chronic stresses they will take a toll on the body the research backs this up very strongly so working around the wheel of misfortune you find that the brain is stuck in a highly vigilant uh watching network there's various different brain networks in which our brain operates in so we can be concentrated on something that's when the frontal lobes are activated and we're thinking we're concentrating we're working on a task if when we're relaxed our mind is wandering and at that point our brain is in this wandering network It's called the default mode network when we're paying attention you know like so you're you're sat with the traffic lights you're waiting for it to go from red to green you're paying attention and that circuits in the brain called the salience network or the watching network as I call it and when your stress response and your fight or flight response kicks in your brain automatically goes into that that watching network that I'm paying attention I'm focused on this thing but if you're constantly undergoing the stress response then you get stuck you're constantly going into this Uh, this this salience network, this watching mode of brain operation. And that takes its toll and can result in persistently low mood, anxiety and destructive thought patterns. So actually it changes the way in which your brain operates. Your immune system is tipped off balance, as I mentioned, causing the bone marrow to pump out uh, white blood cells actually fur up the arteries and worsen allergies. It, It increases your uh, likelihood of your arteries spurring up a condition called atherosclerosis when we are under stress your body responds in this very self-destructive way the helpful um, stress hormone called cortisol which is and actually this is this is a hormone that gives you a sense of, of of lift it's the thing that gets you out of bed in the morning when you wake up in the morning the alarm goes off the only thing that really gets you out of bed is this hormone called cortisol it's the thing that raises your blood pressure it gets you going in the morning if you are constantly stressed though then you don't get that natural boost in the morning you don't get the cortisol and actually you can wake up actually it's one reason why you don't want to get out of bed if you're constantly stressed is that you're essentially becoming burnt out your um body clock rhythms um get affected they're commuted you don't uh you don't have the normal ebb and flow of the day you end up just being fatigued it disrupts your sleeping patterns and that ultimately again becomes a vicious cycle of harm against you it's just think the fuel stores, because you're under your body has been programmed, it's genetically evolved to survive horrendous conditions. So famine, for example, will be a typical, will be a classical place in which we will be under, under threat, will be under stress. And so our body is geared towards holding on to our reserves. So fuel stores will actually... Your fuel cells will then have surplus energy and then it will accumulate as fat and that classically will be around the internal organs um, as a result of stress. So, you know, you see it more often is that around the gut, that is where that's the, the fat that accumulates around the organs and that is very much associated with chronic stress. And the constant flow of the energising hormone adrenaline and cortisol slows down your digestive and your je- digestive system, uh, and that's because when you're under when you're an attack, when you're under threat, your eating is sort of the, is not something that you need to worry about. So it shuts down. Actually, constant stress uh, leads to a variety of, of digestive symptoms and is a major contributor to irritable bowel syndrome. So so blood is diverted from the, from the digestive system towards the muscles, so you lose appetite um, and you get indigestion, as well as these, um, these more chronic, these longer lasting um, digestive problems. Your heart rate, blood pressure, breathing, breathing are constantly elevated, risking health problems such as heart attack and stroke. So is that a quick way to calm my nerves? So i'm just going to tell you this is how you hack your stress response um and when you under, when you understand it you will um hopefully you'll think that this is actually a very good thing to do um so in in your brain there's there's as i mentioned earlier there's a there's a little 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 spot called the amygdala it's very small it's kind of almond shaped and that's where it gets its name from amygdala and this Part of the brain is constantly alert, it's constantly on. So at nighttime, when you're sleeping, if something comes into your room or or a sound, you know, picture falls off the wall downstairs, you wake up with a start. And that's because the amygdala is always on there, day and night. It's looking out for threats. And this is the thing that, when it's activated, drives the fight or flight and the stress response. So that is the seat of all these stress responses, is this part of the brain called the amygdala now i'm going to introduce to you a a concept that you may have not heard before and that is a sense that we all have it's called interoception it's a little known sense uh, that is your mind's sense of what's happening to your body all the time our, unconsciously our brain is picking up signals from from throughout our body from from the blood vessels from the skin from from the joints from the muscles from all, all different organs and tissues and we're not aware of this but our body is our brain is constantly picking up these inputs from um and is and is assimilating that into our emotions into how we feel about about ourselves and about the world and the stress response it's particularly attuned the amygdala is particularly attuned to these these features of the stress response so the like the fast breathing, the increased heart rate, sweating, um, uh, they're all things that that cue your um, your brain and your amygdala to go, I'm under threats. but the thing is as you think about this is that these are all out of your out of your control you can't really control what your what your blood pressure is doing how hard how hard your heart is working but there's one part of the stress response that you can control you can't control how your pupils dilate you can't really control um your digestion slowing down you can't stop yourself sweating but there is one thing that you can control that will that is your breathing you can slow down your breathing consciously and that is one of the 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 cues or one of the the things that your interoception the brain the inward looking eye is paying attention to it's the breathing and by slowing down the breathing by consciously th- using your frontal lobes using your person your personality you can slow down your breathing and and when your breathing slows down your lungs are Um, the rate is slowing and there is there's a nerve that sends signals back from the lungs back to the brain called the vagus nerve and if you're slowing your lungs down then this sends essentially sends calming signals back to the amygdala so it goes all the way back up back to the amygdala and then that what scales down dials down the stress response so rather than getting a a, you know an ever decreasing worsening cycle you're actually starting to calm, calm everything down so that's it's a really good thing to do i find it is that just slowing your breathing down and you know i was often told that you know just deep breaths that'll help you and and i always thought that's never going to do anything but actually when you realize that that i have this 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 sense inside of me this thing where my, my my brain this interoception it is paying attention to what's going on in my body so another thing that you can do is that is that your muscles will tense when um and if you if you sit down and if you feel your body you might think is there anywhere in my body that's tense what's my rate of my breathing are oh, these are things that i can control and relate that to how you're feeling your emotions and by changing the rate of breathing and relaxing your muscles that can have a powerful powerful effect on on your on your anxiety levels your stress levels and how your body responds I'm going to talk about thoughts, Um, how can I manage worrying thoughts Um, and worrying thoughts they will about an impending event will actually ramp ramp up your amygdala's sensitivity causing into a cycle of fretful ruminations that essentially play out on repeat your brain becomes like a washing machine going round and round and round and this is so the thoughts that we have the i wonder what's going to happen the fretting about the future that is dialing up our amygdala to be on high alert and as it does that when your amygdala is turned on and you're in the, in the salience network, as so I said, you're focused on something. The thinking part of your part of your brain, the frontal, the the concentrating, also called the executive network, the area of the brain that basically shuts down, so you can't think more clearly. Um, you then you get repeated irrational fears and you're leaving to fret over impossible catastrophes and imagined arguments things that just you know goes round around your head and you end up in this worsting situation so the thoughts feed in to the amygdala very much so there's some some suggestions here of um that i can suggest about calming those thoughts so that we don't fire up our amygdala that we don't get this whole stress response uh sparking off one thing is to rehearse calm patterns of thinking long before the amygdala anticipates a threat so you can calm out a familiar peaceful pathway in the brain to allay anxiety so you may have heard it said that neurons Brain cells that fire together wire together, and I kind of liken it to um, walking through walking through a field. Is that first time you walk through a field? Um, or, you know, you can't see the path, but over time you will, tr- you, will tr- you will form yourself a trail of every time you walk down it, you're trampling down the grass or whatever it is that is in, that is in the field and your path becomes clear. The same happens with our, with our brain, with the pathways in our brain, that when we use it once, it's easily forgotten. But when we rehearse things over and over again, they become a set thing that become very familiar. And by rehearsing calm patterns of thinking, you might do this through mindfulness, through meditation, through rehearsing. Um, you know, imagining people. You know, imagine yourselves in your in your favourite place, and you can rehearse these things. Sometimes, uh, sometimes people can do a tapping, so you can rehearse. When I tap, I'm going to start thinking about uh, calming thoughts. I'm going to tell myself that that I love myself. I'm going to tell myself that I'm going to think. You know, I'm in I'm in a safe place. Um, I'm back in my bedroom or wherever it is. I'm on a beach. And you can tell you and you rehearse that when you're calm, when you're relaxed, and when you're in that situation, you can go through that same motion again. Slow your breathing down, and that can help um, calm the thoughts, and then bring you back, bring the bring the frontal thinking part of your brain uh, back into action. Another way of getting your the frontal part of your of your brain of your your personality of you back into action, and turning off this primal um threat response, is to do something, do a puzzle, you know do just do something you know it can be do some sums do some calculations do something that brings you into the here and now any kind of problem solving thing um start, do the crossword do something like that and all the things that find something tangible focus on something outside of yourself even if it's about counting the leaves on our plants um will help you have calmer pattern of thinking so there's some thoughts for you some some little um sort of tidbits and tips of things that you can do that you can that you can practice so that when when you're fretting that something terrible is going to happen when you're worrying about the exam when you're worrying about you know the wedding day what's going to happen and that cycle starting is that you can do these things. You can rehearse uh, before and when you're calm, you know, in an evening, you can practice calm thinking patterns. Uh, you can rehearse it in that in that moment. You can then try and do something tangible. You can go to take my mind off of this. I'm going to do something that brings me into the here and now, not the thinking of, you know, what might happen, because a lot of the time those things will never actually happen how can i deal with constant stress i'm going to give you something that i found very helpful is that when we're when we're thinking about the our capacity and the demands upon us it's very useful to think about um about our lives as being like in a scales and on one side of of the scales we have the demands of things the pressures that are put on us the other side we've got the things that that build us up there that give us our reserves that give us our our resilience so um I've just so if we imagine a you know a set of scales and on one side we have the demands on us. So here I've given you, let's say it's interruptions. So interruptions from your phone uh, the whole time. That is a demand, that is a stressor on you. You've got work, for example, and then you've got delays, you're trying to get somewhere, you know, you're being held up, the computer's not working, there's a delay, you know, trains aren't working all these things are stresses upon you and let's say that in this instance the thing that that gives you that refreshes you that restores you that gives you a sense of well-being is exercise then you would, you would have exercise on that side of the of the um, of the scales but what can we do to help with us in our in this situation is there anything that we can take off the those the demands side of the scales, so we've got work we've got delays, and we've got interruptions in this example so let's say that we get rid of the interruptions by you know turning off the uh, the announcements the the notifications on our phone or turning off the emails on a computer and that is one less stress runners us and why not pile up the things on on the things that that help us the things that we know build us up that lift us up so you know, maybe it is exercise, maybe it's being creative, you know, playing an instrument, maybe it's, it's acts of kindness, generosity and thankfulness. They are some of the most powerful things for mental well-being. You know, we we'll often hear it said, and a lot of it will be focused about yourself and solving your own issues and see, looking inside yourself, but actually one of the most healing things, and this is not just sort of hand-waving nonsense, this is backed up by good research, is generosity and thankfulness you know there is good research to show that at the end of every day uh if you keep a gratitude journal and i I do this i've got a little app on my phone is the end of every day gives there's, there's a little little uh pop-up comes along and says reminds me to, to write something thankful on it and i just put at the end of the day before i go to bed i put something in there and that has a profound effect on on the way you see the world and the way you see yourselves and being sociable socializing being with others we are evolved as social creatures the reasons why we are here um is that we're, we're social and that we're born to do that we're born to be with other people and interestingly research shows that, that the boost that we get from being social you get it with being face-to-face but you don't get the same one by texting um it's actually it's got to be phone calls are better than texting but actually there needs to be some kind of interaction rather than being something that's just text-based to get the 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 the, the the fulfillment the the lift the restorative effects that you get from 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 meeting with other people so there's a whistle stop tour through are we re- are we really getting more stressed? and I've explained to you what stress is and I think it's our misconception about what stress is that often makes us think that everybody's getting more stressed is it bad for me um short-term stress can be invigorating it is we need some stress to, in our life otherwise Probably wouldn't do much. So it is good for you. It's but when it's chronic, as in it's long term, it comes and goes, or it's recurrent, or we're reliving something from the past, or it's something like a bereavement. But the but the but the stress goes on for 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 a long long time. Anything that is a prolonged stress, because this this stress response is designed to get us out of an emergency situation. Our body isn't kit isn't isn't built for us to be able to maintain it for months and weeks at a time. Is there a quick way to calm my nerves? Yes, you can hack your stress response by slowing down your breathing, using that, uh, now I've taught you that sense called interoception to talk to yourself by using your body. Um, how can I manage worrying thoughts? I've given you some, some tips there on how you can rehearse getting yourself out of a, a worrying situation, how you can bring yourself back into the here and now. Um, mindfulness can be a very good way in which to you bring yourself into the moment, not be really thinking about the future. Think about the future often causes us to be anxious. Thinking about the past often, often makes us feel depressed, but actually, bring us into the now and actually this is how we are and this is okay. And this is me right now. How can i deal with constant stress and i've said to you look at it at the scales what can you put what's going to resource you put do things that resource you and take things off that it demands all the things that you can because you can probably find that there are some things that are weighing you down that you actually you can chuck off really easily so that is my whistle stop tour through stress and i hope that's helpful to you i'll take some questions now if that's uh, if, um, if that's possible
0: great thank you very much um... We have a couple questions already. So one question is, how do you cope with chronic stress of self-blame and the notion of changing the world with zero power? Does this seem normal or the person has already crossed the threshold of reasonable, healthy stress?
2: How he do you cope with chronic stress of self-blame and the notion of changing the world with zero power? Now, what I would say, Is that a lot of these things, a lot of the causes of our stress are very deep seated. Um, And actually, we can't, we can't, um, we can't solve them very, there's no easy, real, simple solution. You can't read a book and get an answer to it. What I would say, and it's been profound with me, is is counseling is getting somebody or you know a therapist somebody who who is trained to go through these things to actually explore where the roots of of the way that you are come from um because this concept of having zero power for example that will have come from somewhere that you believe that you have zero power in a situation um that's just one example but you will need somebody to go through that with you to explore that i would suggest you know personally um i i was in a very bad place when i was in i was in medical school um i ended up having an eating disorder um and and for years i was played with it i only got through it through uh through counseling uh for many years and you know and the these things these things all of us have 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 burdens that we carry all of us have weaknesses all of us have things that we don't like about ourselves but you don't have to live with that and that you can the brain is highly malleable you know when i was when i was training as as a doctor i was told that your personality is fixed when you get to about the when you get to your mid-teens when you've gone through puberty and you've gone through adolescence your personality then is fixed and unchanging whatever your traits are then you know you're not going to change it and that's just who you are that's your character when you take personality tests it's going to be the same when you're 20 when you're 30 when you're 40. We now know that that isn't true at all. The brain is highly malleable, that you can rewire, it can rework. I could show you a picture of my my brain where I had a brain tumor, I've had surgery and I've had a significant problem about this much of my brain taken out. And, you know, my brain reforms, I'm still me. And just shows the incredible capacity of the brain to reform and in the same way our our stuck ways of thinking those pathways that have been trodden time and time again in our mind in our thinking they can be changed so not a quick and easy answer for you but hopefully that's good um so other questions
0: I think that what is important to realize that uh, many of these issues uh, can be dealt with, as you said, with pro- seeking professional advice and counseling, mm. and many people benefit from, you know, uh, such professional help and recover very well, so I uh, you know, yeah. I mean, encourage Heifer, people to,
2: to pursue this. Haifa sent a really interesting question. Hi, Haifa. Um, hello from Germany. Hello from the UK. um um, beta blockers are used by many people to overcome short stress what do you think about that well from today you can probably work out why is it that people are given beta blockers and beta blockers slow the heart down because you, you can't slow your heart down but Taking a drug will slow your heart down. And that will then send that message to your amygdala to wind down the response, wind down that fight or flight thing. What you don't need, you don't need to, your body isn't actually under that much demand. It's it's this strange, it's this strange two-way thing. Body and mind, they're actually, they talk to each other all the time. We just think that we're brain and we're body, but we're not the two work together. How can the food fight the stress? that's really interesting food is a very rewarding thing so food when we have food and it's pleasurable we have a rush of this thing called dopamine which is the feel good the reward hormone it's the same feeling that we get after we've been on a roller coaster after we've won award after we've had a good well done from our boss uh, it's the same award after you know after having sex it's that it's that uplifting it's that thing that that, that gets people addicted to stuff a food gives us that feeling it gives us that reward we get the dopamine rush so that is how food fights stress in that it gives you a momentary relief so you probably understand from that that it's obviously not a good solution to stress because it is momentary it gives you that that momentary dopamine rush but it doesn't solve the stress it doesn't solve the the stresses this thing that causing you to have the stress response and we've got some more have we yeah uh, them or, uh... uh yeah so so, Learhard, is it, have I missed? Have I missed one that. There? says so one from. So I'm going to say, what? what
0: one on, do you have any suggestions how to approach the institutions rather than the individuals about the stress coping strategies? You know, how impressive. much of this is things that you know self inflicted or can be dealt with at an individual level versus things that you know stress will come from? sort of the working environment or
2: other institutions in society? Um, how to approach the institutions rather than individual stress coping strategies. Um, I'm not sure if I completely understand the yeah, question. I think the
0: point is you, in, in the book and your discussion, you sort of reflect on a stress from an individual point of view, right? Yeah. How do we perceive it? How do we manage it? How do we respond to it? And the question maybe relates to whether that's sufficient, or what a need to one needs to address the stressors yeah. that are you know in the environment. If, uh, you know, in this case, I assume one is we're referring to either societal norms or societal pressure
2: or yeah. institutional stressors. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, you know, I a piece point in the book is that um, uh, absolutely you you. Control everything that you can control in yourself, but then believe that you you can take actions for to remove those those undue demands on you. Like I've suggested, you know, very simple. And as I just said, get rid of your interruptions. But you're in a in an institution. You can. You have a degree of control over your situation, you can exert influence, you can tell people that this is you know this isn't right, this isn't this isn't working. Um, I'm finding this increasingly difficult. would it be a good idea if we did this in this way? Um, so yeah, you can you can manipulate your manipulate your environment, your your workspace too and and you know work with other people on that because you want a, a an environment that isn't conducive to chronic stress. Is that kind of where we're going with that? Yeah, perfect. Okay. Cool. So the second
0: question is about resilience, mm. and do you think that too much resilience can be a negative thing? Because a negative thing, because it, I I could imagine people sticking, for example, to media, you know, uh, I guess okay. meditation,
2: while they should actually be working on changing their lives. I see what you mean. For example, yeah that's a that's a great question um are we hiding from our problems by just going in on ourselves and actually not facing up to facing up to the facing up to the to the the issue are we just saying I can deal with this myself you know I just got to sort out my own stress you're giving the example of a toxic relationship yeah that's a yeah of course that's a real big danger and I want to you know temper everything that I say is that um it isn't just about you know, you you can you can look after yourself. You know, I can uh, you know I can encourage you that these are some tools for you to understand yourself a bit better and to deal with your side of things. But that is no um, reason to not deal with a dysfunctional, damaging situation or an environment, an institution that you're in that is harming you. Um, I definitely don't want to encourage, don't want to say that. So it can be too much a resilience thing. I think we can put too much stress on. You know, it's all on me. I need to be more resilient person rather than these. You know, and I think these things are really important. You know, I mentioned before about as being social. I think that the the power of being able to talk with other people, being able to share, being able to discuss things and see it from different angles is really important. So that you're not in this on your own. So, does that kind of help answer the question that, yeah, that this isn't, you shouldn't shouldn't just retreat to yourself? And, yeah.
0: I wanted to bring a point about the the importance of socializing and in person socializing. And Mm. I'd like you to elaborate on the point you say in the book that the symptoms of rejection and isolation are so similar to physical pain that they can even be relieved with painkillers. Yeah, absolutely.
2: Remarkable, isn't it? Powerful. Remarkable, yeah. People who are going through grief, for example, then painkillers, studies would say that painkillers actually diminish the pain of that grief. We shouldn't underestimate the pain, the emotional pain that we feel. It is real. You know, I I hate this thing of that, you know, it doesn't matter because it's not, you know... You know, we talk about abuse and people who've suffered physical abuse are, are put in a place of so much worse than people who suffered emotional abuse because we consider that physical harm, bruises, injuries are of more value than, than those that are emotional. And actually, bruises and broken bones will heal, but the things inside can take much longer and can stay with us for, you know, with you know, I've given an example of post-traumatic stress disorder, it can live with us for far longer. So, yeah, so... I think in response to that, yes, socializing can be very healing, but the emotional pain of, of, of rejection and of loneliness and separation it is a real pain. So
0: there's one question about a new type of stress. It's called eco-anxiety. Eco-anxiety. That is, that is the general stress caused by the climate crisis. <laughs> that is especially felt by the younger generations do we classify this? You know, where do you classify this on the different types of stress or
2: along this? I, I mean, if it's, it can kind of be useful for people to, to, to you know, like journalists when they're going to write about things. It's kind of quite nice, well, to give to pigeonhole things, but it's not a, you know, a unique. Um, stress in and of itself it's one of these these things from outside that that we often feel very helpless about because and I would say this I spoke to a very um, interesting cognitive uh, neuroscientist and he told me that he never reads the news (laughs) <laughs> and I said, someone said, "Why do you never read the news?" He said, "Well, it doesn't impact. It doesn't impact me. I'm, it just makes me feel bad when I read the news. You know, it has no. It has no impact on my life." And I, I said to him, "Actually, you no. Know, I like being informed. I like to know what's going on. Actually, there are instances when, you know, especially with COVID, I spoke to this. This was before COVID had happened, where actually the news is really important to actually to to let you know what's going on and what you have got to do. But it is, you know, I think that that is, you know, I think you know, advice that I give." is that especially talking about in the morning i think the morning is a really important first part of your day is that in the morning the first 30 minutes after waking your your brain hasn't yet fired up you're suffering a thing called sleep inertia where your brain essentially just keeps slipping back into into sleepness um and in that time you can't make decisions very well so i say to people is that first thing in the morning don't look at your if you've got your phone don't look at the news on it don't look at work emails anything like that probably don't even go on social media just only if you're going to use it use it for the most calming relaxing things play some nice music or if you've got a meditation app or something like that um, use that because you won't you're you're in this very vulnerable state you can't deal with new information very well and so i think news very much falls into that is that Especially first thing in the morning, we we can't keep perspective on things. We we jump to conclusions. We can't we can't make decisions. There's very good research to show that when we're suffering sleep inertia, we can't make good decisions. We will we will get emotional, we'll get anxious about something, unduly. So yeah, you
0: just, call just, it just... Uh, the brain's golden hour, the morning. <laughs>
2: yeah uh, the brain's golden hour uh, i think not for making decisions i find that waking up in the morning and being creative yeah, and writing exactly. i find i find that very good but in terms of if you've got to make difficult decisions wait at least at least half an hour after after getting out of bed do something first half an hour you know make yourself a cup of something you know have a shower something just you know enjoy the enjoy the sunrise something like that and then deal with yeah don't turn off the notifications in the morning for you for for news and everything that's what that would be my recommendation
0: so if if you allow me you know we've talked a lot sort of to to get a little bit personal with respect to stress because Mm. you know you I think you mentioned this before I mentioned this in the introduction Mm. you know as a young person you you spent a lot of your time is studying hard, working to excel to make it to medical mm-hmm. school. You made it to medical school, you became a doctor, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden you were diagnosed with this brain tumor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I can imagine that that must have been a very stressful period, you know, especially when recognizing that now you can no longer practice, you know, the thing you love to do. So, could you, if you, it's you such an inspiring story, the transformation that you've been able to, to go through, you know, and, and, and just keep moving forward and reinventing yourself and you're redefining and re identifying, you know, your passion. You know, what, you know, could you just walk us through this period? Sort of how, how did you manage those challenges, the stress and the anxiety, everything that came? And and what were the empowering things or empowering moments that helped you pull through uh, and, and keep moving forward?
2: Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. It's been some very, some very dark times, some very dark times. Um, and I think that throughout it all, I owe a lot of it to the people around me, you know, my family, my friends, the people who supported me, you know, no man's an island, and and time and again we know that the more of a social network you have around you, the better you will stand um, challenges that we face. So I spent a lot of time talking about stress and what you can do for yourself, but it's not just about you, it's about the people around you. You have have to support the people around you. In terms of me personally though, I went through a period of very, very being very low, especially in the six months after I was diagnosed. um, I got to a point where I was actually, forming plans as to how I might, how I might kill myself. And at that point I, I, I realized, no, this isn't healthy. Um, when it starts to get you know I, know, I know we all have these thoughts sometimes time oh, I wish I wasn't here, but I think when it gets to the point of you forming plans, that's when I just think, no, I can't do this anymore. So my GP. And so I did I have had antidepressants and I found that they're very helpful. I about six or eight weeks after starting. The the just sort of the lows weren't as low. The highs aren't as high, but at least I wasn't as low as I was. Uh, and so that very much got me through it. Lots of counselling um has helped along the way. I think I wouldn't uh, you know, can recommend it stronger, the importance of getting professional help with all these things. There are things that help. And I think you realise, I mean, I was 25, I think I was, when I was diagnosed, it's that all these things that you hold dear, you know, our identity, you know, that I'm a doctor, that you're, you're an academic, that you're a professor, this is what you do, this is how people see you, this is how you value yourself, like it or not. But when that is stripped away, and often this only happens at the end of people's lives, and this is why um, I know that palliative care doctors, they find it such a rewarding profession to being because you're with people when the layers of the onion get peeled off and all of a sudden we realize that that this this thing that I thought was important isn't what is actually really important to me what am I who am I you know my deep down inside who am I what's important to me you know you know i'm a husband i'm a son all these things i'm i'm a brother these are things actually are more important what is it about me that that is who i am and i think when you have that happen to you and then you get to the core of what is my identity what is really important how do i want to spend my days on this planet that can bring you a great deal of peace and then you can you can feel more positive about life and you know where you're going with life so that's sort of you know but it's a it's been very long
0: about reconnecting with oneself and, and surrounding yourself by you know people
2: who are very supportive and uh, and care for you. Yeah and I think knowing yourself yeah and and being, being I think knowing yourself, being kind to yourself um, are important things is to yeah. I think we're often we're often very harsh on ourselves and we we think we should be doing more we think we should be better but actually I think just a healthy dose of realism just realizing this is who I am this is where I'm at and if the situation is rubbish just saying the situation is rubbish or using stronger language than that and just being real about it I think we've um have we frozen
1: excellent so Yeah, so thank you very much for your excellent presentation today. And I think all of us learned a lot and I really liked uh, many questions. And perhaps I would uh, like to sort of ask the question, which is really close to a couple of them we had in the the beginning and then a a little bit uh, uh, further down, which with regards to these larger pressures, pressures on especially younger generations when it comes to global challenges and when we wake up in the morning we always are thinking about them so how would you reconceptualize it so we're not internalizing it but actually dealing with it a, a bit better
2: in terms of sorry just so in terms of people younger generations dealing with sort of the climate change uh, situation mm-hmm. that's a really good question that's a really good question i always think it's good to control the things that you can control and don't worry about the things that you can't control. I think it's a good, good, you know, other things that you might, I th- also think it's about having hope and being positive in all situations. Um, I think that they're things that I think are really important. I think when we're dealing with these huge sort of existential things with climate change and this constant drip, drip, drip of, of this threat against us, it's really hard and there are no easy solutions to it, you, you know, but I would say, I guess you've got to look after yourself, you've got to do what you can and I think hope you know from my own personal journey is that you should' never lose hope because I for all you know I should be dead by now you know people say you know and people people say doom and gloom with with the world I say, yes, it may all be that way, but people who are hopeful and optimistic they live longer than those who those, who, those who are those who are pessimistic. so if nothing else, be hopeful and optimistic because you'll live longer and you'll be healthier.
1: Excellent. And I think that's a brilliant note to end on our webinar today. So thank you again, Dr. Stuart Fireman for your talk. And thank you, Dr. Hilal Ashuel as well.
2: Thank you for the questions. Great questions.
1: And thank you to all of our listeners and viewers and join us next time.